Well, it is good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. We're going to continue our study through this book that we have been on uh, this journey for quite some time. And uh, for those of you who've been on this journey with us, you know what our kind of my MO is. And that is, is that we take things basically a paragraph at a time as we work through this book. And, and we've, we've done that. We've, we've looked into the, the paragraphs that Mark has written all through the first 12 chapters. But if you've looked at your outline that's there in your bulletin, you'll notice that Today we're going to deviate from that a little bit, and we are actually going to look at the entire chapter of Mark 13. And I want you to know that there is a reason why we are going to study such a large chunk at one time. As we read chapter 13, what I want you to know is that this is really just one large block of Jesus' teaching that is given in the form of an answer to some questions that Jesus was asked by His disciples. And as such, everything that he writes comes together. It's all part of one, uh, one response to, to the question. And, and, and it all is a package commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And we find parallels to what we read here in Mark 13 in both Matthew chapter 24 and also in Luke chapter 21. And as before I read the text to you, however, I, I, let me also add that this chapter is universally known as one of the most difficult chapters to interpret in all of Scripture. In fact, Kent Hughes notes that we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the naughty problems of the Olivet Discourse. Therefore, he goes on to say, study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we do not know everything. Let me just go ahead and admit to you right up front. I do not know everything, contrary to what my wife may think. I do not, and I certainly do not, as it even pertains to this chapter here, certainly. So with that as an introduction, however, I want us to read this entire chapter. I want us to read it together today because I am convinced that if nothing else, the reading of God's Word enriches us, and it opens us up to the work that the Holy Spirit would desire to do through His Word, which ultimately He is the author of. And so this morning as we open our Bibles, may we also open our hearts, and may we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us through His very Word that He writes, and He writes through the pen of Mark, who in chapter 13, verse 1, tells us this. Then as He, that is Jesus, went out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. 
But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the, that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for giving it to us. Thank you that it reveals great and marvelous things to us. Things that are revealed to us not simply so that we may increase our knowledge. Things that are revealed to us so that we may increase our obedience. 
you may transform us, that you may conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, as we open our minds and as we open our hearts to you today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak words of truth to us, that you would change us, make us more like Jesus. Give us hearts that are consumed with love for him, love for our fellow man. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. I mentioned you, to you that, that studying this text requires humility and, and it requires a willingness to admit that you don't know everything. And I just want to go on, on record by saying that, that that is absolutely the case with me and with this text. Uh, I readily admit that I do not know or understand everything about this passage, but I also want you to know that through my study of it and uh, through my pondering of it, through praying over it, this text, I believe that this passage has insight for us that is a lot like my vision. Many of you remember last year I had LASIK surgery and laser surgery on my eyes to correct my vision. And, and um, when that was done, uh, what ended was is that I was able to, to see and read with my left eye. And so when I, when I read the scriptures this morning, the, the words on this page are very clear in my left eye. But in my right eye, things are really blurry on that page. On the other side, as I look out at you this morning, all of you come into great focus in my right eye. I got 20-20 this way so I can see you. But in my left eye, if I close it up, you're all very blurry to me. And so my vision is, is like that. I, I see you both with clarity and I also see you with blurry vision at the exact same time. And when I read, I read with very clear eyesight on this page and yet it is blurry at the same time. And many of you are probably listening and going, I think that would drive me crazy. And I want you to know, I think it's driven me crazy <laughs> as well. But it's in understanding that and allowing your brain to kind of get used to seeing things that way to some degree. I think that helps us understand a little bit of what's going on in this Olivet Discourse here in Mark chapter 13. It's somewhat like that, I believe. I believe there's some parts of this discourse that were very visible, very clear, up close. In other words, some of what Jesus describes very clearly occurred in the first few decades after he spoke these words. However, almost in the very same breath, Jesus speaks about things that appear to not have occurred in the over 2,000 years that have transpired since these words were spoken. In fact, those parts of this discourse only gain clarity in light of the future and in the future in a yet unfulfilled event. To show you what I mean, let's just look at this from the context. According to verse 1 of Mark 13, we find that Jesus departed the temple for his last time. And he did, as he did so, one of his disciples, it's not named, looked at him and said, do you see how beautiful this temple is and, and how massive it is? As if he was bragging on, on the beauty of the temple. And Jesus just looks at him and says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall stand or be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, just considering the size of the temple mount makes that an interesting statement in and of itself. You realize that 12 football fields could fit inside the Temple Mount. Not only that, but, 
But the southeast corner of the retaining wall of the temple hung some 15 stories above the ground, sloping down toward the Kidron Valley. That's a, that's a tall wall, to say the least. Not only that, but the construction of that wall was made with such enormous stones that, that some even estimate that the weight of some of those stones were as much as a million pounds. So to consider in one's mind that no stone would be left sitting on top of another is, a, is such a massive thought that it no doubt would have created many questions in the minds of his disciples. Like, when is this going to happen? How is it going to occur? You can only begin to think of the questions that began to roll through their head, which is why, according to verse 3, after having traveled from the temple to the Mount of Olives, which was a, a, a position above the temple so that they could actually look down upon it, Peter, James, John, and Andrew converge upon Jesus and they ask him in verse 4, they say, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? In other words, from their perch, which was about 100 feet above the Temple Mount, the these things to which the disciples refer were to the circumstances surrounding the ultimate destruction of this massive, beautiful temple that had been the center of their religious activities in Jerusalem. When would it be destroyed? When would these stones not lo no longer remain on top of one another? Now, in the, the parallel account that we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, we read that the disciples asked that exact same question. They say, tell us when these things will be. But then Matthew records them also asking, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Therefore, what we conclude is that what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 24, what we also read in, Matthew, in Mark chapter 13, and also what we read in Luke chapter 21, is his answer to those questions. Now, contextually, we know that what Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse is in some way related directly to the destruction of the temple, which historically, we know, took place in 70 A.D. when the Romans invaded Jerusalem in order to, to, to squash a, a revolt that was taking place and had been taking place over the last five to six years. And in the process of that, not only the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, but the temple itself was destroyed. The debate about the Olivet Discourse here in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and Luke 21 revolves around whether or not what Jesus says goes on to move past what took place in 70 A.D. To, to an undetermined yet future event. Does he also refer to that? And in full disclosure, you should know that there are many solid and conservative scholars and pastors who say no. Everything Jesus writes about, everything he says here in this Olivet Discord can all be centered and related to what took place in 70 A.D. However, as I have stated... I, along with many others, believe that there is a prophetic nature to what Jesus says that moves outward past 70 A.D. to both not only a near fulfillment, but a far fulfillment as well. And I ultimately base my interpretation on the fact that this text, in answering the questions asked by his disciples, Jesus not only addresses the these things, about which the disciples inquire. In other words, in verse 4, he, he addresses their question about what, is it going, what are the things that are going to lead up to the, these things, in other words, the destruction of the temple. But he also talks about what will happen in those days, something much farther down the line. 
He talks about days that would happen much later, long after those disciples had already died. In fact, in verse 24, Jesus says, In those days, amid many visible signs coming from the sun, moon, and stars, He says, The Son of Man will come in clouds, in the clouds with great power and glory, followed by the gathering of all of His elect from all across the world. And then, notice, notice that in the very final verses of this chapter, Jesus says, And of that day and hour singular, when the master of the house will come, it will be sudden and surprising. So it is my interpretation based upon the these things that Jesus identifies as well as the those days that he talks about and ultimately as, a, as, as about of the that day and hour that he speaks of that Jesus is referring not only to what takes place in 70 AD but to what will also be happening at a later point in time as well. Now, here's the question. Do we just take this and kick it back and forth like a soccer ball at one another? Do we, you know, wh whether you agree with that interpretation or not, is it, is it our responsibility to use this passage as a means to which we leverage one opinion against another and, and cause division? I don't think that's why Jesus gave this answer at all. Rather, I think really what our responsibility is is to say, okay, in light of what he has said, what do we do with it? In light of what we do know, how do we apply it? And I want you to know the, the very first rule of interpretation that you really need to come to at times, especially when you get into deep theological waters such as this, is this rule, and I've tried to maintain this most of all of my uh, pastoral ministry, and it's simply this. The plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. Now, that axiom, that axiom will help you Whenever you get into murky waters, and it has helped me immensely, and I want you to know this, if the plain things are the main things, then what are the plain things that we can identify in this passage? Well, you should know that from verses 5 all the way down through verse 37 that I read for you, there are 19 different commands that Jesus gives, 19 of them. They're imperatives in the Greek, and seven of those are either the same or have overlapping meanings. You'll find them in verses 5, 9, 23, 33, 35, and 37. Let me give a few of them to you. You'll remember them when I, when I read them. Jesus says, take heed. He says, see to it. He says, be on guard. He says, watch out, be alert. And then my favorite is the last ones, which in the New King James is just translated watch, but I like it better in the NIV. It says, stay awake. I may use that one. Stay awake. Jesus tells us, stay awake. Now, it's these overlapping meanings and this overlapping emphasis that Jesus decides this is something that needs to be done. And what I believe that we can plainly identify is that the main thrust of this passage really is, is what Jesus wanted to communicate to his disciples and what he wants to communicate to us. And so the main thing about this passage is this. It's be ready. In fact, I've listed that for you on your outline this morning. The main thing is simply be ready. Now, if the plain things are the main things, and if the main thing is to be ready, then we need to ask definitively and very clearly, be ready for what? What is it that we're supposed to be ready for? In fact, that's the first point on your outline this morning. For what do we need to be ready? Well, we know that the disciples were interested in knowing when the, the temple was going to be destroyed. Jesus had predicted it. They wanted to know when it would happen. But their second question about a sign, particularly as Matthew told us, they wanted to know that 
what the sign of Jesus' coming in the end of the age would be. Now, if you were one of those disciples, everything Jesus talks about was in the future. When he, when he answered this question here in Mark 13, everything that was going to occur was in front of them. But what about for us? We know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And we know that Jesus is also talking about his second coming and the end of the age. So for us, we have to be concerned with how this passage applies to us to be ready for the return of Christ and the end of the age. And I believe that that is made explicitly clear by what Jesus says in verses 24 through 27. I'm going to read those verses for you again. They are very important. Jesus writes, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth and the farthest part of heaven. I personally do not see how those verses can be understood to refer to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. To me, they only make sense in light of the second coming of Christ. And consequently, I believe that Jesus is clearly stating that we need to be ready for that return whenever it occurs. So, as I mentioned, readiness is the main point of what Jesus communicates in this passage. Therefore, we must realize... What we have to realize is that we need to be ready for that return. But that begs yet another question. Not only when we say we need to be ready, we, do we ask we need to be ready for what? But there's another question that comes up. And that's the second point on your outline this morning. How must we make ourselves ready? We not only need to be ready for something, but we need to know how to be ready for it. Well, Jesus tells us in his own words what we need to do and how we need to be preparing ourselves for his return. And he does that by telling us, first of all, we need to make ourselves ready by not being deceived. That's the first sub-point there underneath your outline. By not being deceived. Notice that back in verses 5 and 6, and again down in verses 21 through 23, Jesus warns his disciples, and he warns us that there will be folks who come along at various times claiming to know all kinds of things. They know, they know when the Lord's going to return. They know, they know how this is going to happen and that's going to happen. Many of them come along claiming to be Christ themselves. Jesus simply says, take heed, look out, be alert, do not buy into what they're selling. Don't be deceived by them. Don't be deceived by the lies and by the things that they're trying to sell to you. You know, in recent years, we've actually seen that. If you remember, back in 2011, there was a man who came on the scene whose name was Harold Camping. He actually didn't come on the scene in 2011. He'd been here for a while. He'd, he'd made statements before, but particularly in 2011, he said that the world was going to come, in, come to an end on May the 21st, 2011. When that didn't happen, he shifted his gears and said, oh, I missed it by, by, by a few months. It's going to happen on October the 21st, 2011. And then, of course, that day came and went as well, and obviously Harold Camping was wrong. There were others, if you remember, 2012, December the 21st, 2012, there were those who were predicting the end of the world because that date coincided with the end of the Mayan calendar. And so there was a great push to say that the world was going to come to end December the 21st, 2012. And obviously that did not happen. Here's the point. Anytime someone proposes 
that they know when things are going to happen. Or that they know that they are the Messiah, such as a Jim Jones character from, from many years ago who claims to be the Messiah. You can be assured that they are false. Jesus clearly states that such people are deceivers. They're false Christs. They're false prophets. And therefore, we are not to be fooled. We are not to be led astray by such folks. In verse 32, Jesus says, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So that's the first way that we need to make ourselves ready. We need to prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. And that is that we not be deceived. But we need to continue our readiness by noticing the next point that I've given you there. It's by not being anxious. By not being anxious. You see, in answering his disciples' questions, Jesus mentioned some things that would begin to occur prior to the, the things about which he prophesied. And honestly, the kind of things that Jesus mentions are the kinds of things that, that we would not look forward to. None of us would. He, he mentions three things specifically. He talks about political unrest. He talks about nation rising against nation and wars taking place. And we know that that has taken place throughout the millennia since he even spoke these words. He also talks about natural disasters. He mentions earthquakes and, and, and widespread hunger, disease. A third thing that he mentions is persecution. Persecution that comes directly at the believer from both outside the family and inside the family. Persecution that comes as a result of the government. Persecution that comes as a result of family members who come against one another because of their Christian faith. But then according to verse 7, Jesus makes this astounding statement. He says, but do not, don't be troubled. Do not be troubled. Why? For such things must happen. But the end is not yet. Jesus says these things have got to come into place. Now, he moves forward in verse 14 and notice that he seems to talk about things even getting worse. He pulls from the prophet Daniel and he talks about the, 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 the abomination of desolation, which is a reference to the desecration of the temple. And he says, look, when that happens, this is what you need to do. Run. Run. In fact, don't stop. Don't pass go to collect $200. Run. Don't even go to your house to get something from it. Run. And, and, and listen, you need to run so, so quickly and so fast that pregnant mothers, those that are nursing, those because if it's wintertime, it you will be slowed down. That's the real danger is that you don't want to have the distraction. You need to be able to run to get away from that which is coming. And here is the thing. Here's why it is so bad according to verses 19 and 20. For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. There are many who read this passage and they actually apply it back to what took place in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. When the Romans came in and just slaughtered the Jews that were there. In fact, the situation in, in, in Jerusalem was so bad that the historian Josephus writes about it and says that the dead bodies just had to be picked up and thrown over the wall by the, by the thousands. It was a horrible situation. But while these verses can be understood in light of Jerusalem's destruction, I believe that they also point forward to a later, even more severe tribulation that will fall upon the earth. 
a time when, if the days were not shortened, Jesus says, no flesh would survive. Now let me ask you something. In light of that, how is it, in light of what Jesus just said, in the, the, the dire nature of what he has described is going to happen, how is it that he can also tell us not to be troubled? Well, he says in verse 7, such things must happen. And then we've already noted in verses 24 through 27 that it will be after that tribulation that Jesus says the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. In other words, He can look at us and say, let not your heart be troubled. In other words, He can say, don't worry about the bad things that are coming. Why? Because the things that are so scary with which strike such fear in our hearts they are nothing more than a prelude to the something that is infinitely greater, and that is the return of the Lord Jesus. What that means is, is that our anxiety is ultimately relieved by our confidence in a living Savior who has demonstrated power over sin and death by rising from the grave. It, our confidence is in one who has ascended to heaven and who is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father ruling over all of the universe for His glory and for our good. Our confidence is in one who has promised us that He will never leave us, nor forsake us, nor abandon us, but that He will come again and receive us unto Himself, that where He is, there we may be also. So what we've seen, in order to be ready, we must not be deceived. Secondly, we must not be anxious. And then notice subpoint C there, we must also make ourselves ready by remaining faithful. By remaining faithful. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus indicates some of the circumstances that would happen just prior to the destruction of the temple. In the first part of the paragraph, he speaks of the disciples being arrested on charges and brought before the councils, before the Sanhedrins. And, and that, that would necessitate them giving a testimony. We can read the book of Acts and we know that that exact thing took place. And they were brought before those. And, and Jesus says, at that time, look, don't stress out. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't premeditate what you're going to talk about at that point. You don't need to worry about those things. You allow the Holy Spirit to speak through and He will speak. You be faithful in leading and letting the Holy Spirit use you. And then perhaps less obvious, but no less real and certainly no less troublesome was the fact that in providing signs that would occur prior to the temple's destruction, Jesus says in verse 10 that the gospel must be preached to all nations. And while that verse was not completely fulfilled at the time of the temple's destruction, and in fact, I believe it's still in the process of being fulfilled today, what we do know is that prior to the time when Jerusalem was, was sacked by the Romans, we know that there were Jews, Christian Jews, who had come to faith in Christ, who from the persecution because they were Christians were being dispersed throughout the Middle East. They were being dispersed throughout Europe. And guess what they took with them wherever they went? The message of the gospel. And they were sharing that message, even though they had been persecuted, even though they were undergoing persecution as it was, they took the gospel message to people, to Gentiles who had never heard the message before. The lesson to be learned then from these verses is that even under persecution, we are to remain faithful in carrying our testimony of the truth of the gospel to all with whom we come in contact. And furthermore, it is a reminder that being a witness for Christ will not be easy. 
In fact, Jesus says persecution and suffering, even unto death, would accompany those who follow him. But then he warns all of us in advance about this so that we'll be ready for that time when it does come. And the truth is, every time that a believer is attacked for the sake of Christ, they have the opportunity to faithfully preach the cross and the empty tomb. So we must remember that the more opposition that we suffer, the better our opportunities are to proclaim Christ. And therefore, we must remain faithful and remember Jesus' word from verse 13, where he says, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Brothers and sisters, our text presses upon us our need to make ourselves ready for the return of Christ by not being deceived, by not being anxious, and by remaining faithful. That leads us to the final question that this text begs to be asked. And note the third and final point on your outline. And it's this, why must we be ready? Why must we be ready? To understand the why, I believe we have to recognize the plain message that Jesus sends. Honestly, in the final paragraph of chapter 13, Jesus' message is that we must stay awake. His message is that we must not be caught napping. His message is that we must not be asleep at the wheel and just drowsily moving through life without taking into consideration the truth of what he just has told us. Come July 1st, public service announcement. Come July 1st, you need not have your phone in your hands when you're driving. They passed the law. Ted, where you at? Me and you got trouble coming, buddy. You want to know why they passed that law? Because distracted drivers. Because people like me drive down the road and they hear their phone ring or they see a text message or they see something like that and they immediately think what's more important right now is that I answer that call or I look at that text and I am keeping my eyes on what's in front of me. And you know what that law really is designed to do? It's designed to make people wake up and pay attention to what's most important. What Jesus says in this final paragraph is a law just like that. He says, watch out. Stay awake. Don't be distracted by all the other things in this life that can pull at your attention and keep you and drag you off the course that you need to be on. We must be ready because we, will, we stand the, the, the potential of going through life just drowsily thinking everything's going to be okay. There's never going to be a moment when Jesus finally does what he says he's going to do. But he says, look, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. Jesus says then, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. Here's the point. If we're going to make ourselves ready, we can't just keep holding on to everything in this life thinking it's the most important things that there are. In Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 and following, listen to what Jesus says there. He says, but take heed to yourself lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. 
It's going to affect all who are on the face of the earth. I cannot understand how that could be applied directly to 70 AD Jerusalem. It will affect every person, he says. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, as Romans 14.10 says, will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. And according to the scriptures, for believers, the day of judgment will be a day of vindication. On the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ, who offered his perfect blood for our sins, we will be declared righteous in the sight of God because of what Jesus did for us. But brothers and sisters, for unbelievers... For those who reject God's grace, the day of judgment will be a day of doom. On that day, God will banish all of those who did not place their faith in Christ from His presence and they will be condemned to suffer for eternity. That is the reason why we must not simply drift through this life without thinking seriously about the return of Christ and about what it means. God's ultimate judgment is the reality that lies behind Jesus' command to be ready and to prepare for his return. Consequently, there's an urgency to what Jesus tells us. He says that day will come quickly, unexpectedly, suddenly. Therefore, we can't afford to be distracted. Listen to what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? We might also say to not be deceived is not only to not believe the false Christ that say that the end is coming and, and can point to when it is and also to the ones who say it's never going to come. To not be deceived means that you understand what the scriptures say. And he says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Therefore, beloved, Looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Brothers and sisters, the, the scriptures are clear. Jesus is clear. He will return. And when he comes, it will catch many by complete and total surprise although all the signs that he has given are fully in effect. Heaven and earth will pass away. His word will by no means pass away. So this morning we have delved into what has historically been one of the more difficult passages in all of Scripture. Yet in attempting to keep the plain things the main things, what we come away with is a recognition that in light of prophecy, that Jesus gives in his answer to his disciples' questions, you and I must be ready for his return. We must make ourselves ready by not being deceived, by not being anxious, and by being faithful. Finally, we understand that we must be prepared and ready because our Lord's return will come suddenly and all of us will one day stand before him to be judged. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Because all of us will stand before him to be judged, we must prepare and be ready for the return of Jesus. 
The question before us today, in light of what Jesus has said, is just simply this. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Should Jesus return today, would you be ready to meet him? If you don't know him, you aren't ready to meet him. If you have never been saved, if, if you have never opened your heart and trusted in Christ to be your Savior and Lord, then you are not ready to meet him. But I want you to know the Bible says you can be. The Bible says that if you will rest all of your hope in what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, if you will rest the full weight of who you are on him and pin all of your hopes upon him, the Bible says that you will be saved. That is your first step. It is to recognize and to admit that you are a sinner who is incapable of saving themselves, but believing that the scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ came to die and do for you what you could not do for yourselves. And admitting your sins, repenting of those sins, trusting in Christ, making him Lord of your life, that is the first step of being ready to meet Jesus when he returns. If you have done that, then the real question for you then is, are you living your life in light of the imminent return of Jesus? Or do these words at the end of Mark 13, the words, stay awake, do they hit home this morning? Do the words, be vigilant, strike a chord with you? Have you grown so comfortable in this world, so consumed by the things that this world offers that you do not have your mind fixed on the soon return of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. Though no one knows when he will return, make no mistake about it, he will return. Therefore, I encourage you, be ready for him. Live each day as if you will meet Christ because one day you will. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.